0: Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to Talking CFD with Robin Knowles. It's kind of like my show, but for CFD nerds, prepare to ignite. It is indeed. Welcome along to another episode of Talking CFD, the show for CFDists that's much more about growing a business than growing a boundary layer. Today I'm talking with Paul Bemis. Paul's the president of Applied Math Modelling. They're the company behind CoolSim, a pretty unique, in my opinion, CFD package for modelling the cooling airflow in data centres. They've got an interesting take on quite a few things, not least the way they structure their app, so I'm hoping we can cover a bit of ground. Does that sound like a plan, Paul?
1: Yeah, it sure does, Robin. It's glad to glad to be with you today.
0: Cool. First off, do I call you Paul or Mr. President?
1: Yeah, no, Paul's fine. <laughs>
0: Um, For those listeners who aren't in the data center cooling business, could you give us an overview of what CoolSim is, and we'll see if you mention my favorite bits of it.
1: Sure. Um, CoolSim is an application-specific tool for modeling the airflow in a data center. Most data centers, Robin, are still air-cooled and probably will be for a very long time due to a whole set of economics that encourage that. And so you have to make sure that the inlet conditions on the racks where the servers reside into a certain range of temperature that meet a standard specification defined by an organization called ASHRAE. ASHRAE is the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, Air Conditioning Engineers and they have set specifications for inlet temp and if you exceed them then you run into a server failure. So the trick in data center is get enough cool air to the right locations so that the servers are happy. What CoolSim allows you to do is model that behavior because airflow is difficult to predict. And uh, with CFD, computational fluid dynamics, we can very easily model the airflow, the pressure, the velocity, and temperature anywhere in the room. Um, our motive for pursuing this particular application simply comes from the growth in the internet and servers and data centers, which is growing at a compound annual growth rate of about 12%. And we thought there would be an opportunity to take our standard CFD application and tune it to match the needs of users trying to predict this particular physical phenomena and sell it as an a application-specific tool. And that's what
0: CoolSim is. So it's not your traditional CFD package. It's, um, it is a downloadable tool, um, but the solutions aren't computed at, at my end, even though I've downloaded it. Is that correct? That
1: is correct. That is correct. It is a client-server application. So the way we built it, I'm I'm a believer in remote simulation. Uh, I grew up uh, in the high-performance computing area where we always did work on craze and uh, and so forth or or supercomputers. And CFD, by definition, is data-intensive. It wants a lot of data space. Uh, The field data is voluminous, and the computations are floating-point-intensive. So it wants a lot of cores, it wants a lot of memory, and it wants a lot of frequency, a lot of high-speed frequency. So it is a big job, generally, and these data centers are quite large, ranging you know, upwards of twenty, thirty thousand, forty thousand, fifty thousand 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 square feet of, of white space. They are big, and they are complicated. There's a lot of underfloor geometry, there's a lot of airflow uh, going in different directions, there's perforated tiles. So it is fairly straightforward from a physics point of view. It is fluid flow heat transfer. Uh, There's no phase change. There's nothing, uh, there's no transient. This is all steady state analysis. Uh, But there's a lot of complicated geometry and the model sizes get quite large. So the issue of running locally is problematic in the sense that you would need a very expensive local machine to process. The other characteristic of this user, this particular user, Robin, is that they tend to be what we call occasional or what I tend to refer to as periodic. Occasional denotes the the, the thought that they're not serious, right? They're an occasional user. These are very serious people, but they only use it once in a while. Uh, So I tend to refer to it as periodic. Not casual. Not casual. They're they're just occasional. They use it. They use it very intensely for a short period of time. As a result, the learning curve needs to be very short because they uh, interact with the tool for periods intensely and then go away from it and when they come back they have to come back up that learning curve and remember how to use it so unlike a general CFD tool where there are lots of buttons and lots of knobs and lots of variables here we bring it all the way down to a very very tight set of controls that aren't large in quantity the number of icons across the top are Uh, 5 or 10 as opposed to many more. The number of variations is quite low. The output is fully automated through scripting so that the customer receives an HTML report at the end with everything they ever need to know in it in a very highly automated sequence. It's almost an automatic report generator in the sense of uh, the CFD portion Uh, and all you do on the client when you uh, are setting up the model is create the geometric shapes How big is the data center? How deep is the floor? Is there a ceiling plenum? What kind of units? It's library-driven, so it's all drag-and-drop. We use industry-standard equipment that's used in the data center for cooling units and racks and things like that. And it speaks the language of data center. When you turn it on, it comes up with a data center. It's empty, and you have to drag-and-drop equipment into it. But it is a data center. You can recognize it as a data center.
0: That's an interesting take, that um, rather than having to learn CFD. The users are the the thing they have to remember is how to use the software, as opposed to having to remember what CFD is.
1: That's correct. Yeah, the turbulence models we've already picked for them, the flow conditions we've picked. They have to give us a height, so you know where are they at altitude on Earth. So we need to know altitude for density. Uh, but all of the CFD components, all of the the knobs, all of the dials that are normally visible in a general purpose CFD package have already been preset for data centers um, including turbulence model for example. So we've done all that work for them and it becomes more like a calculator uh, than a, uh, a book of uh, tables where you can look up calculations. So we've tried to make it extremely easy to use. People who use it range from degreed engineers to data center operators. A data center operator doesn't always know uh, the physics behind CFD and shouldn't need to know the physics. What they do know is the layout of their room, where the obstacles are that they can lay in place, and what the model numbers are of the units that they're using for cooling, how much equipment they have, what the loads in the equipment are, and with that information they can build a model, push a button, and we'll do the rest.
0: Your own version. Of- 4.4, I think I, uh, I read today on the website. It, so I imagine it's evolved quite a bit from the uh, the early days. But ha- have you always had this client-server architecture, or is that something that's come along more recently with better connections and things like that?
1: Well, we have always had it, and um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one I mentioned already is that the data tends to be voluminous, so it requires quite a bit of local computing to do it. Um, number two is economics. The economics um, are that uh, traditionally, to have a CFT package running locally, um, the normal price tag for that kind of thing that that I have always seen, both uh, and I was responsible, by the way, for pricing at both Ansys and the Fluent Corporation, tended to range about twenty thousand dollars per user per copy, locally. Now. That's quite a bit of money, Robin. $20,000 per user per year.
0: Absolutely. Lease price.
1: Now, the problem with that is that if I'm an occasional user, I don't use it very often. That's a big number. Mm. And so, when I was at, for example, Fluent, we were successful at selling it into automotive and aerospace because we used to say those people have no choice. You know, you can't <laughs> build cars and planes without having an analysis tool to make sure they're safe, the, the cost of recall is too high. So for people who have no choice, and by the way, work on this full time, they're manufacturers, and this is what they do, those prices are palatable. But if you're in the design-build space and you're doing data centers, you may only run a simulation once or twice or three times or four times a year. Uh, Then $20,000 is too high a price, and they simply won't buy it. Um, you know they, they, they what what they 've used in the past is nothing, and nothing is is, is by definition very low cost <laughs> and so from going from nothing to twenty thousand dollars is a big step so all we 've done really from an economics point of view is put the intellectual property of the c f d on the server and then allow people to share it and therefore aggregate its cost its economics in a way that allow people to use it for a price that's much more closer to six or seven thousand dollars per user than it is 20. So we were able to use the client server, uh, multiple user kind of aggregation to drive down individual costs. The other piece here that, that is important is we're using a general purpose CFD uh, tool on the backside. The server is actually running the ANSYS Fluent CFD solver, same exact solution that you find in automotive and aerospace. There are two other providers in this market that compete against us, and they are both local. They run their codes locally, the old-fashioned way, on a local computer. Uh, but they have also had to build, rebuild them. They've had to come up with new measures and new, you know, reinvent solvers because it's their own code. Our approach was to license it from the ANSYS Corporation, who I already had a relationship anyway with so that we didn't have to reinvent that wheel. My thought was, why reinvent it? If people who have already solved the issues of meshing, solving, and post, why reinvent them? Uh, so what we did is simply establish a licensing agreement with them so we can run their off-the-shelf solvers on the server. We built the client specific to data centers, and we support and, uh, support and develop the, uh, the interface and, of course, the uh, support the customer base.
0: See that makes so much sense to me that I'm wondering who else is doing this that I've that I've missed. Why aren't more people doing building on top of a an existing engine like Ansys um, and, and producing a a niche focused app? Or are they doing it and I just haven't noticed?
1: No, they're not doing it. We're the only ones that I know of that are doing it, and I and I don't know why, Robin. I will tell you that it's not trivial. I mean. You know, we we doing GUIs and and client-server computing is 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 uh, is hard work, trying to get it all to work well. But there are tr- significant benefits to it. The other piece I'll point out is these niches aren't very big. I mean, the data center CFD market isn't isn't huge. It's it's fairly you know modest in size. And so, if you're trying to do a startup company or you're trying to do something that you want to sell. Um, you know, then it may not be a fit. For me, it was a wonderful fit because I was interested in the science. i already worked, of course, for both Ansys and Fluent, and this was an opportunity to be a value-added partner. And while I was at those companies, I established a value-added partner concept and said, let's encourage people to build on top of our software. Uh, we're not unique in that regard. Microsoft does that. Many other companies, Oracle does that. There's many companies who encourage people to do it. But in the simulation space, there are a few that actually do. And I'm not exactly sure why. But I'll tell you, we're gaining a lot of momentum with this approach. And I think it's scalable to other market segments. I think there's markets for, you know, just look at, let's take a look at buildings alone. Uh, Heating in buildings. A lot of that is convective heat transfer. Some of it's radiant heat transfer. Those can be modeled in CFD very effectively. Solar loading on a building can be modeled very effectively in CFD and the heat that comes into the building because of it. Airflows in atriums, smoke, evacuation in subways and and other areas. There's many, many specific applications that could be built uh, for uh, the design-build arena using the same exact approach we've taken here, and, and many of those we're looking at to expand our market further. Uh, so these are all what we used to always talk about is that we need to build hammers to hit nails, not not something that can be made into a hammer <laughs> or a screwdriver. <laughs> we, we want to build hammers and screwdrivers so people can use them on specific tasks and not have to learn about turbulence models or learn about meshing or learn about how to do post-processing. Uh, Robin, the, the post-processing uh, user manual for, for the ansys fluent solver the post-processing piece of it is 300
0: pages
1: (laughs) (laughs) just for post-processing alone
0: probably most of it text as well yeah it is yeah yeah (laughs) so uh, with the ansys engine in the back you guys could solve almost anything and you were saying you 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 can think of off the top of your head several other um, niches that could benefit from this sort of thing but from what you were saying it would be um it wouldn't be a case of expanding CoolSim to attack those other areas. It would be a different product targeted at a particular niche. Um, That's correct. So you guys obviously see a huge value in that niching down and having that focused target market. Um,
1: I don't know of another way to do it, Robin. Here's the thing. Um, if you're a bigger company, and I, I work for these bigger companies, i worked for Hewlett Packard for many years as well. If you're a bigger company, uh, you need a big market in order to, to, to make it worth your while well to pursue it, right? Because uh, growth, of course, is a function of the current size you are, and you need big targets. Um, not everything is a big target. Sometimes it's an aggregation of smaller targets that, that, is, uh, that is required. And to do that, you need to be cost-effective, and come up with a solution that's, that's focused on a specific niche and then build the domain expertise around it to become uh, excellent in the area of support. So let me just review support because th- we do that differently as well. The client-server SaaS model allows you to do support in a different way. Um, historically the way support has always been done is if my model fails I have to zip it up which is a problem because it's big and I have to s- send it to you a support person somehow. Now, you can't attach it to email because that's only 10 megabytes. I'm trying to send you gigabytes, right? And then you have to figure out what I've done uh, and try to understand it and then give me advice about how to fix it and hand me back another email. I mean, this is just awful.
0: I imagine there's a good chance that somewhere in that process, I tinkered with it as well to take anything that I thought was, uh, you know, that I didn't really want you to see. Um, maybe change the geometry, change the problem. Exactly,
1: exactly. So it's it's always a problem. Support has been a problem because of the volume of the of the data, and the differences in machines. Your machine is different than mine, so you know that could be a problem, and usually is. Now the way we do it in CoolSim is when you submit a model. If you're one of my users, Robin, you submit a model, and it fails. We get immediate notification of the failure. And everything we need to know to diagnose it is already on the server. So all we have to do is go to the server and look at the log files, look at the case files. We we bounce up the input files so we can look at that as well. And we can fix the model without your help. You don't have to tell us. You don't have to notify anyone. You don't have to do anything. And if you've made a mistake in the creation of the model, we can show you what you did and annotate that in, in either email or make short video clips is popular these days and show you what you did wrong and send it to you. The beauty of this is it transcends language and it transcends distance. It's no longer a problem to support somebody in Turkey. I have a new user in Turkey for example. We're in the United States, we're near Boston and I can support this user in Turkey as well as if he was co-located. Yeah. Even though they speak a different language It's all about physics and models, and I can explain to them what they've done wrong, and they are thrilled with the support. Now, the support includes some domain expertise. You have to understand data centers a little bit and understand fluid mechanics a little bit. Uh, But that kind of support, the tight coupling between the user and the customer, or the user and the support person, cannot be replicated using the older method of local computing. You simply can't do it. So the SAS model works really well for uh, occasional users in particular. Uh, The other piece of this, Robin, is that because the application is well constrained in terms of uh, physics and uh, and the domain in which it works, data centers, the failure modes uh, tend to develop a very consistent pattern. And so they're easy to recognize. So when we look at the log files, we can usually tell within seconds what the user's done wrong because they fall into typical patterns, and we're able to fix it and hand it back quickly. So this tight coupling is unusual, can't be replicated using any other model, and I'm finding customers find it to be very, very valuable.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure. Especially if they haven't experienced it before, I, I imagine it feeds back into your um, support documentation as well. If you're seeing the same thing all the time because it's um, so close to you, you can you can address that in a in an FAQ or a how to or something like that beforehand, maybe. Yeah,
1: typically video. What we're using a lot today is video. We use things like Camtasia to just uh, show the user. Uh, Camtasia is a screen capture uh, sequence, you may be familiar with it, people use for doing demos. And we use it to just capture what the user's done. So we capture the screen, we manipulate it, it's got audio annotations, so we tell them what they've done wrong, show them how to do it, how to do it correctly, and then post that. Uh, We do it both on online support and and we do it specifically for cases that fail. Uh, So some of this uh, video technology has come a long way and allows communication to uh, to occur uh, quite efficiently
0: yeah on a similar note, I noticed that um, you guys make heavy use of webinars. I'm guessing that's a strong channel for you um, you've you've got a, a quite an archive on your on your website of um, of previous webinars that you've given. Um, is that something you knew already knew worked well or is it something you tripped well, over?
1: Well no, I knew it worked well because um, I had done a lot of uh, that kind of work. Before working for Hewlett-Packard, we had, uh, in fact, our radio show, much like you're showing it, like you're using today, that we would produce, and I found it worked quite well. Um, the webinar, let me just say that, the, in general, the channel of distribution has to change here, too. Um, historically, CFD software has been sold by direct sales organizations. Now, I already told you the price point of the software, from a Coulson point of view, is moving closer to the to the Sub ten thousand dollar per user kind of space, hmm. from, so it's less than half of what it has been historically. When you do that, you have to rethink the way your channel of distribution works because you can no longer afford a direct sales channel. So, what are you going to do now? Also, there's a demographic here. The demographic of user that I tend to find is fairly young. These are I call them all my kids' age. I have kids that are in my, the twenties, and I feel like I have a bunch of cool some users who are kids. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I just mean they're younger, and so those type of people tend to go to the internet. They tend to be more comfortable going to YouTube and 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 typing in, you know, how do I fix my broken model, yeah. than they would going to my website even or going to anywhere else. So, um, yeah, I find that. The web and search engine optimization is the way to do demand creation in in the most cost-effective way. I am becoming less and less an advocate of things like trade shows over time because nobody goes to them and nobody can afford to go to them. And most people, when they want something, will spend time on the Internet searching. And then they'll also do background checks, see what other people are using. They'll have their homework done, so by the time they reach out to you, they've already looked at your YouTube site, they've looked at you in LinkedIn, they've looked at you, uh, your website, and they've also uh, gone to other places to get a, a peer review of the kind of work you're doing. Uh, the consumer tends to be well-educated today, and uh, they tend to do it all on the internet, and they aren't particularly interested in going to trade shows. So we've just recognized this and begun to use webinars as a way to educate. And there is a teaching component here, you know, how do you do a webinar, uh, I'm sorry, how do you do a data center, how do you analyze it, how do you look for energy efficiency, how do you optimize the design, what is important, how do you model a raised floor versus non-raised floor, overhead cooling, whatever it happens to be, we'll pick those up in webinars and show them. And I have a fairly large group of people following me who are interested in this topic, and my assumption is that eventually they'll either tell somebody who has an interest in using the software, or they'll directly use it themselves.
0: Well, that was kind of leads into my next question. Actually, in, they they are heavily educational. I, I watched a couple of the replays from the site, and um, with the, the uh, with the format of getting a, a guest in, um, a, a domain expert, and um, and teaching for flat out teaching for the the, the webinar, and they don't. Well, certainly the ones I watch didn't have the um, ubiquitous fifteen-minute hard sell at the end. Um, they're That's right. That's right. they're they're a genuine um, educational effort. Do you, do you find that they do they convert to sales, or is is it? Have you got a different goal in mind at that point in the in the awareness cycle?
1: I have no hard evidence that say that they do convert to sales. I have anecdotal evidence because I have people. Who I recognize on the list, and they keep coming and coming and coming, and finally they dump the package they're using and come over to cool Sim <laughs> to do that. But it is as much to be part of the community as anything else—the community of people working on data centers—and I represent the community through webinars. Here's what some people are doing. Here's what another customer. I usually try to pull in a customer and, and get them to talk about the design they were up against and how they solved it. Um, and I just assume that uh, if people like what we're doing and we're doing a good job with it, you know, sort of it'll, it'll, it'll come around to business at some point. Um, you know, when I was at HP, for many years we used this uh, term, Robin, called the trusted advisor and we tried to be the trusted advisor. We tried to give customers the straight story on stuff and assume that would somehow come back around to us and, and, and positive business. And, and by and large, it did. So, my thought is as long as you're straight with people and you're honest and you try to work hard and do a good job and, and, uh, and present the facts, that uh, it'll come back around to a sale at some point and there's no need for the high pressure push. Uh, of course, we're an independent company and we're not backed by outside capital and there's no idea of uh, selling it or flipping it or any of that. So, there's no outside pressure to do it anyway. And, and that's uh, a nice environment from which to work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So do you have any advice for somebody who's building a a product business in the CFD space? Maybe something you wish someone had told you when you were starting out?
1: No, I pretty much knew what I was getting into because I had been pursuing it at Ansys anyway, um, a couple of different times. So I knew what I was getting into. Uh, My, but, but there are some misconceptions out there. Here's one that, uh, that I uh, sometimes hear. It is that as long as we build a superior product and it's really easy and fun to use, that it will become viral and it will take off by itself and and it'll be fun. (laughs) And what I find is not so easy, not so easy. You know, even now with CoolSim, you know, where we do one account at a time, we win one user at a time, and we do it through uh, excellent support, uh, hard work, uh, patience, uh, you know, teaching, educating that there has to be somebody on the backside of the software who cares enough about the application to help people come up that learning curve, even if it's a short period of time. One of my users recently, and, and this was the one in Turkey who came on earlier in the year, and uh, ran into all kinds of problems. As I mentioned to you uh, possibly earlier, they, they use a different representation of, of period and comma. So um, like the Germans, they they switched their periods and commas in numeric referencing. Well, that threw the software off, you know, because it was expecting a period it got a comma. So we had to overcome that. We had to overcome communication issues. So there were many issues that we had to overcome, but yet a very happy user at the end of the day, and he came up that learning curve and, and is building some very sophisticated models now. So it takes the willingness to really be, sincere about the support you're going to provide to your customer and follow through on that. And that hasn't changed. We did that very, very well at both Ansys and Fluent. We pushed really hard to make sure our customers are happy campers because if they're not, they're not going to come back or they won't renew. Uh, So that remains the same and there's no way to substitute that. You can't just, uh, um, you know, sell software and then move and then sell it again and then move on to the next account and sell it again and move on. It doesn't work that way. You must provide continued support and education to your community. and You must have the domain expertise to help them. And that's independent of the market segment. So if I was saying uh, smoke, if I was modeling smoke, it would have to be the same way. It would have to be an expert on smoke. If we were modeling um, uh, radiant heat transfer inside of buildings, same thing. have to know that very, very well. Uh, so, a couple of companies I've worked for, we did this. We divided our support organizations into areas of expertise. We had a multi phase group. We had a, a, a group that did fans and turbines. We had another group that did combustion. And that worked really well because customers calling in or, or trying to email us or whatever to the support side would go to that area of expertise and interact with people who are experts. And that worked really, really well. Uh, same case here. You've got to be able and willing to put the domain expertise behind it to help your customers uh, through these issues and give them good education and good advice, and then the rest will follow. Some days I think we're in the support business and we give away the software. Other days I think we're in the software business and we give away the support. To me, it doesn't <laughs> really matter. You know, It's all the same. It's just an issue of uh, really being sincere and trying to do your best to help them get through the the, the critical piece now in this space they tend to be design build people design build people uh, you know the built environment is all done based on billable hours so they bill out their hours like a lawyer does to a particular project and so time is critical they have to get this stuff done quickly as quickly as possible the faster they get it done the more uh, of course overall money the, the company makes and so they're pressed for time always so being able to respond to them as immediately, say, hey, uh, Robin, I saw that you had a, a job that failed, and uh, and I picked it up and took a look at it, and you've got this wrong. Go fix that. Boom. You've just made a, a, a very happy customer, a very satisfied customer who, who will be loyal because you help them, and you help them quickly and efficiently, and, and we're able to provide some expertise for them. They're as happy as they can be. That's how you do it. You distinguish yourself based on uh, the sincerity, the relationship you develop with your customer, hard work, and, uh, and of course, good products.
0: Excellent stuff.
1: Well, you know, in many ways, it's not a surprise. I mean, you know, guess what? The old adage of uh, trying to work hard and do a good job for your customer pays off. Good customer service pays off. Uh, but I often find that people try to short-circuit it. Uh, Or have this perception that if they build a better mousetrap or a better product, and it's just so fun to use, that the support won't be necessary and won't be there. I haven't found that to be true. Um, Software always needs work. It always needs help. um, And people come at things from many different points of view in the world with respect to usability. So what worked well in the United States may not work well in in a different uh, geography for cultural reasons many times. So you have to always be willing to adopt the, adapt the software to the new situation, be willing to make some changes, and uh, be willing to provide the support. I find the support makes the biggest difference. The way that we've structured our software so that it's client-server and we're able to see when users are having trouble allows us to have a distinct advantage in that area because we can be preemptive. We can get to their problem quicker than they can even tell us that there's a problem. And oftentimes, this is great from a language point of view. I'll give you an example. Um, Yesterday, we had a user coming in from uh, Latin America. Now, English isn't their first language. We know that. Generally, as you know, Robin, if English isn't someone's first language, they're reluctant to both type it and speak it. They don't want to do either. (laughs) They'd they'd rather type it than speak it, but they don't really want to do either. (laughs) So we saw this user coming in, and we can see them banging against the server and fail job, fail job, fail job. So we jumped in, took a look at the job, saw what they were doing wrong, fixed it, sent them a nice email in English, said, this is what you're doing wrong here. Here you go. Now, they had to be delighted because they didn't ask for help, and they got help. And even if they had trouble reading the English, uh, which they could get some help with and eventually translate, they had time to do it. And furthermore, the fixed model sitting there waiting
0: for them. Exactly. They had a working model to dissect if they needed to. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So... The system we've built, I think, is unique, and uh, I would argue that it's the best support system I have ever seen. And as I said, I worked for HP for ten years, and I worked for Fluent Enhances for another ten or fifteen, uh, which makes me, of course, rather very old. But but I've seen a lot of different support systems, and this one is really good. Just the way it's structured is really quite good uh, and responsive.
0: It's a different approach that I um, I haven't heard haven't heard many people talking about or focusing on. So uh, that's it's really good to hear. Um, I want to thank you, Paul, for for coming on the show. Where should people go if they want to find out more about CoolSim, or maybe if they want to connect with you?
1: Well, you can find us quite easily on the web. We're at uh, CoolSimSoftware.com. dot com. That's our website. We also have videos on YouTube. So if you just search CoolSim, you'll find it. Uh to, to send something to me, I'm first name dot last name. My first name, Paul, P-A-U-L dot B-E-M-I-S, B-E-M-I-S at Uh Also, anything will work. Sales at or, or info at CoolSim Software will, will work as well. So we're fairly easy to find. One final thing about search engine optimization, by the way, is the great thing about niches, Robin, is that they're easy to, to rank very high in the search engines because they're tight niches. You know, if you search on data center design or data center optimization, we're on the first page. Not because I've spent a tremendous amount of money on search engine optimization tools or techniques, but because there aren't many suppliers (laughs) that do that kind of work. And so uh, all three of us show up on the first page, you know what I mean? (laughs) So uh, doing niche marketing uh, has an advantage in that you can use very distinct search engine phrases and you'll be found easily so uh, we, we, we tend to be found pretty easily so
0: another plus one finishing down then
1: yeah yeah that's right yeah.
0: <laughs> well thanks again Paul it's been good to speak with you
1: Yeah, no problem at all Robin. have a good day well
0: I guess you're still listening you must have got something out of this so why not hop over to talkingcfd.com and sign up for the mailing list be good to have you You'll get updates of new episodes and also more info about the end of season roundtable that I'm planning, where you can join me and some of this season's guests live for a little Q&A session. If that's your speed, then drop your email in the box at talkingcfd.com and I'll keep you in the link. See you next time.